Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has begotten us anew unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have been born anew through the living and abiding word. That word is the gospel which was preached to you. And we drew out this lesson that the aim and the goal of God in regeneration, in new birth, is to create a living hope. I wonder if anybody last week experienced the new birth. I have a feeling someone did. I'll tell you more about that later. Maybe somebody this morning is coming under the influence of the Holy Spirit in such a way that the upshot is going to be regeneration. How would it happen? What would it be like? Let me describe what it might be like. You come in here as a lost sinner. You sit down in the pew. You feel a little bit uncomfortable in this religious atmosphere, but nothing that a good dinner and some TV this afternoon won't take care of. You look around and actually, it is sort of interesting to be here. In fact, you've You've thought from time to time in your life, I wonder if I ever could really become religious. I wonder if I could be like those people. I've never happened, but that would be an interesting thing if I could become like one of those people who really sings and seems to get emotional about God and talk about him as though he's real. And, and so it's curious to be here. And then the message begins, and the first thing you hear is that all men are sinners, and that they're not only sinners, but they're sinful. They have a love affair with evil, with disobedience, and that by nature, we are all anti-God. And for the first time in your life, that sounds reasonable. And you say to yourself, yeah, everybody I know is like that, and me too. And the message goes on. And you hear the additional word, the wages of sin is death. Everybody who is opposed to God and rejects God and doesn't believe on his son has the wrath of God lying upon them. And for the first time in your life, that thought that there might be some connection between your disobedience of God and his punishment doesn't enter as an intellectual possibility. It begins to weigh on your heart, and guilt starts to rise, a sense of danger, a sense of uncomfort and insecurity, and this all may be true, and I might be in trouble. And then the next word comes as guilt starts to mount, and you hear the word of God, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to take away the worst of sin. It is actually possible that Jesus Christ justifies the ungodly, that he cleanses the unclean, that he accepts and changes cheaters and prostitutes and middle-class agnostics. And then you hear the additional word, the unspeakable word, that God, the holy God in heaven under whose wrath you stand, is rich unto all who call upon him.
For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And suddenly, something happens. It's called new birth. It's called a quickening. And inside, a life is born. And the immediate result of this life is this event. Perhaps no thunder, no lightning, maybe no billows of emotion, just a peaceful laying down of the arms of resistance, a gazing into the eyes of the crucified Savior and the drinking in of mercy, free. And then the rising of this conviction. I'm included. I'm included. The promises are for me. The invitation was for me. The welcome is for me. The justification is for me. The acceptance is for me in spite of all my sin. And no longer are you a sinner sitting in the pew, but a saved sinner sitting in the pew. No longer are you simply born of the flesh. Now you are born of God. And the upshot and the immediate result is a rising, living hope in God. And let me put in a parenthesis here that I didn't add last week and perhaps should have and will more often these days. If that has happened to you recently, or in the distant past, or is happening to you this very moment. You know what the next thing on your agenda is? Baptism. Every saint in the New Testament, that is, every person who was converted, got baptized and bore public witness that they were giving evidence of having been buried with Christ and raised with him to newness of life. If you have not done that, take a piece of paper before you leave. And put on it, Pastor, I'd like to talk with you about baptism. Stick it in my hand, hand it to an usher, put it in the office, put it in the envelope and mail it. Don't fail to go on in obedience when God has so graciously laid hold on you. Close parenthesis. Today, we're on the brink of a danger. Satan comes to people who've been born again. He feels them slipping away from his victimization. And he mounts every effort to deceive them with his half-truths. The thought that he will sow into a new believer's mind, maybe even an old believer's mind, would go something like this. He says... That was a wonderful experience. I'll never forget that. How good it is to be free from the need to struggle with fear and guilt. Now I can go on to my work and my home in peace. Sound good? It's got a lie in it. Beware, Satan always comes with half-truths. He won't let himself be exposed so easily. You know what the lie in that is? It's this. You will struggle with guilt and fear. 
and you won't have only peace. For when you were born again, you were born for battle. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The battle to go on hoping in God. Hebrews 6, 11 says, let us maintain the full assurance of hope unto the end. How do you hold on to the full assurance of hope? And not begin to rest on some past emotional experience as though that's going to carry you to glory. Turn with me to Romans 15, verse 4, if you have a Bible or can reach a Bible. Romans 15, verse 4. While you're looking that up, I want to tell you a story about a man named Henry Martin. Henry Martin was a missionary to India and Arabia and Persia in the early 1800s. When he left England, he was 25 years old, and he left behind Lydia Grenfell, his fiancée, whom he loved very much. He would never see her again. He died six years later of the fever at 31 years old. On the boat, leaving England, he really, had to do battle with self-pity and with depression as he said goodbye to her and saw himself surrounded by unbelievers. And he did battle. Two months later, after he had begun to feel at home in Calcutta, something devastating happened to Henry Martin. He was sitting in a worship service and a veteran missionary stood up and devoted his sermon to criticizing and belittling this young missionary, 25 years old, and his theology. What would you do? Here you are, 8,000 miles away from home, left your fiancé behind, hoping to receive encouragement from the veterans, and they nail you in public. How do you keep on enduring? For Henry Martin, it was six more years, and he wrote, he translated the New Testament into Hindustani and Arabic and Persian, and then he died at 31 years old. How did he do that? Here's how he did it. I'll read his journal. In the multitude of my troubled thoughts, I still saw that there was a strong consolation in the hope set before us. Let men do their worst. Let me be torn to pieces and my dear Lydia torn from me. Or let me labor for 50 years amidst scorn and never seeing one soul converted. Still, it shall not be worse for my soul in eternity, nor worse for it in time. Though the heathen rage and the English people imagine a vain thing, the Lord Jesus who controls all events is my friend, my master, my God, my all. That's what I mean by battle. He took the truths of God's word and he fought against discouragement and hopelessness and unbelief. He fought like a soldier. And then he went on the way of obedience for six more years of productivity when he didn't feel like it. 
and he did a great work for God. Now this verse in Romans 15.4 teaches us how to fight the fight of hope. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that by the steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. That's a real simple and easy text, and I can just lay it out for you in three points. One, all the scriptures are given for our instruction, our teaching. Second, all the scriptures are intended by God to help you have steadfastness and encouragement. And three, all the scriptures aim at this ultimate goal, your hope in God. Right there, everybody can see it. Let's look at them one at a time. I focus on this issue of instruction first. All the scriptures are for our instruction because we're prone to want to short circuit that, aren't we? Everybody in this room likes to be encouraged. Anybody doesn't like to be encouraged? That means that we all like to go to the Bible to find some crumbs of encouragement, some nuggets for the day. But we short-circuit the process of instruction, of doctrine. We want the crumbs, but the banquet meal of the ordered truth of God, that takes some effort, and we sort of want to get around that on the way to hope. Well, this text says that the Bible is laid out for teaching, for doctrine, for instruction, and we need to hear that and give heed to it and labor at it. Benjamin Warfield, heard of him, famous theologian from Princeton, at the turn of the century, a very unsympathetic saint came up to Benjamin Warfield one time and said to him, Mr. Warfield, ten minutes on your knees would teach you more of God than ten hours over your books. And Warfield had a beautiful response to that. He said, what? More than 10 hours over my books, on my knees. There was another saint at Princeton in those days named Philip Lindsay, who taught New Testament. And he used to make the same point by saying to his young man in the uh, class in New Testament, he would stand up and say, Brothers, one of the greatest ways to prepare for death is a thorough knowledge of Greek grammar. (laughs) And he's right for pastors. It simply means do your duty. It simply means know the scriptures as well as you can know them. That's the way to get ready for death. Now, the point of those two little anecdotes is not to get everybody to spend 10 hours over your books. God forbid, because then the world wouldn't be infiltrated by real people. But some of you should. Some are called to the... Calling of scholarship. And it doesn't mean that everybody should learn Greek. Some of you should. You know who you are. For whom that's part of your duty. The point of those two little stories is this. We ought not to fly over the Bible on the way to work in the morning. And fly over the Bible on our way to bed at night. It's worthy of more than that. There is teaching in it. There is instruction We ought to stop and meditate for some time and give some 
effort to go to worship, go to Sunday night teaching, go to Sunday school where the word is taught, buy a good book and read it about the Bible and memorize that word until you get the banquet of doctrine and not simply the crumbs from the table. That's point number one. The Bible is there for instruction. And the point number two is that the instruction is not just for your head. It's mainly for your heart. Look at it. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that by the steadfastness and encouragement of the scriptures. So that's the second point that the scriptures are there for our encouragement, our endurance. That's another word for for steadfastness. What, what is endurance? Endurance is that stick-to-itiveness that keeps you going in a path of obedience when it hurts, when it's painful, when it's miserable, when it's discouraging, when it's surrounded with obstacles. That's what this text means by endurance. Where do you get it? Get it from the Bible. There's a retreat going on up at Shalom House right uh, now. A marriage retreat. There are, I think, about 25 couples up there. And they assign each of those couples, a person or couple here, to pray for them and to write them a letter which they then read when they get there. It's found in their room. Well, Noel and I have a couple. And we've been praying for them. And I wrote a letter and Noel wrote a letter. And, and in my letter, I used a text that uh, is a funeral text. And a great marriage text to try to show them that the way to stay married is to have endurance. And the way to have endurance is to get a biblical perspective on life. And the text goes something like this. We do not lose heart. Though this temporary affliction is working in us an eternal weight of glory. We do not lose heart. For we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, I don't know if you would have written that to somebody at a wedding, a marriage retreat. But here's why that text saves my marriage. When I go to the scriptures and I'm all in a tiff with Noel, and all I can see is trouble city and let down. What that text does for me is lift my view and cause me to see something great, something magnificent. So that the little trouble in the teapot at home can be seen in its proper perspective. Eternity is great. Whatever troubles we encounter in the path of obedience here are only working an insurpassable glory in the age to come. And I am freed from my little tempest to get a proper perspective on things and have endurance through the trouble. And we always come out on the other side because God is gracious that's point number two, namely that we are getting 
endurance from the scriptures. Point number three. All scriptures have this goal to sustain our hope. Whatever was written beforehand was written for our steadfastness, was written for our instruction that through the steadfastness and encouragement of the scriptures, you might have hope. It's hope that enables endurance, isn't it? Will Steger, recognize that name? Is that the North Pole? May have been picked up already. I suppose he has with his team. Now, what do you suppose kept that team going for 56 days in minus 70 degree weather with pain in their toes and on their nose? It wasn't because they didn't believe in the North Pole. And I asked the boys at the breakfast table this morning, I was testing this out to see if this was going to work. Uh, I said, do you think they would have kept going if they knew that there was someone waiting about 18 miles this side of the pole who's going to shoot every one of them? No, they would have turned around and gone home. Because what kept them going was the hope that they were going to make it Now, the whole world was going to be listening when they said, Roger, 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 we are at the North Pole. We are at the North Pole and get their name in the Guinness Book of World Records. That's what keeps them going. Hope. And they're just like I am. I'm no different. When Jesus called me, he made it very plain. The North Pole of heaven is across an ice field of pain. I was just reading in my devotions this morning, Acts 14, where Paul goes through the churches, strengthening the souls of the believers, saying to them, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom. There is an ice field to cross, and the only thing that's going to keep your hope alive when you are shuddering and shivering and freezing and the ice is crackling is hope. And the point this morning is, the only way to fight the battle of hope is with the Word of God, the Bible. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. That brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. What does that mean? That means he endures in the drought. He endures in the hurricane. He endures in the blight. He endures and endures and endures and does not give up. And if you don't have the Bible. To give you hope day in and day out with the promises of the word and the assurance of the work of God. The world, the counsel of the ungodly is going to say to you, it isn't worth it to keep on being a pastor. It isn't worth it to keep on being a wife and mother. 
It isn't worth it to keep on going to the mission on Franklin Avenue every week. It isn't worth it to teach that class of boys. It isn't worth it to work in the nursery. It isn't worth it. Throw in the towel. Quit pouring yourself out and making your life miserable just because you think it's your divine responsibility. Eat, drink, and be merry. You've only got one life to live. What's this ice field you're going through? There's palm trees to the south. And if you don't have the Bible to fight against his lies, what are you going to fight with? And so my commendation to you, my plea to you, my urge to you today is give yourself to the word. Morning, noon, and night. Memorize it. Study it. Love it. And fight with it. Let's stand for prayer. Well, Lord God, forgive us for leaving our weapon on the shelf and going out into a world filled with devils, and lies and thinking that we can sustain our hope without it. Oh, forgive us, Father. And I pray now that you would put it in the heart of every person in this room to love instruction from your word. And then, Lord, would you grant that out of that instruction comes a great heart of hope. And that out of that hope comes a great strength for endurance that we might endure to the end through all the ice fields of life and be saved. Now may the God of hope, who loved us and gave himself for us, Give us hope and joy and peace through the power of the Holy Spirit and the promises of his word. And all God's people said, Amen.